Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 23rd of July 2018 and this is episode number 73. On today's podcast, I talked to Dr Amy Fox, lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London, about her new book, Learning to Fight. This looks at military innovation in the British Army during the First World War and is published by Cambridge University Press. I spoke to Amy over the interweb from her home in Wiltshire. Hi Amy, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on the programme. Um, so I'm a lecturer at King's College London and I'm based down at the UK Staff College where I teach military officers across all three services, but also officers from other countries as well. Um, before that, I was uh, long term at the University of Birmingham where I did all my degrees and I had my first academic appointment. As to how I became interested in the Great War, um, it's actually been quite a long standing interest. So probably from my early early teens when we did war poetry at school um, and I remember talking to my family about you know how much I was enjoying that and my great aunt out of the blue just sent me a load of first world war documents from relatives who had actually served in the war I had no idea that I had family who had served so I had letters home photographs um, and really from that point I was hooked at the time I suppose when I got those letters because my relative was killed in June 1917, I actually felt quite negatively disposed towards the First World War Army. I sort of blamed them, I suppose, for the fact that my great grandmother had lost her husband and was now a single mum to twin girls. It was only really when I got to university and took modules on the First World War that I got interested in how the army actually functioned as an organisation, but also the pressure that was placed on those who led and commanded it. So I suppose I've got that really fortunate, I suppose, interest that I've got that personal collection and that's led me into this professional um, connection as well. So we're going to talk about your new book published by Cambridge University Press. Can you tell us what it's all about? Yeah, so I suppose to boil it down to the basics, the book is really about how an organisation deals with change in a time of crisis. So in this case, how the British Army changed, adapted and learned during the First World War. Um, and I think for me, it was really important that the book was actually about the British Army rather than just about the British Expeditionary Force on the Western Front. So in the book, I cover off operations in what are called the sideshow theatres like Palestine, Italy, Salonika, Egypt and Gallipoli. And I think I was also really keen um, in the book to broaden out our discussion of learning, because I think a lot of it is about battles and tactics. And of course, I'm not saying that that's not important, but I think learning relating to allies, relating to civilians are just as important. And so they form quite an important part of the book. Now, many people think that the British Army during the Great War was a rigid, conservative institution full of butchers, bunglers and individuals like Blackadder's go for, goes forth General Melchard. And was, was the same organisation pretty much in 1914 as it was in 1918. Is there any truth to this perception? Oh, that's a really great question. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> so I think actually that perception is actually influenced by a number of different factors. First off is the Second World War, you know, the good war, 
um, and it makes the First World War appear somewhat futile. Also, the Second World War is generally perceived as being more mobile, got really whizzy technology, and I think that makes the First World War seem even more antiquated. I also think that we have a tendency, rightly so I think, in some respects, to focus on battles like the Somme and Passchendaele and the the incredible losses within those. And I think that reinforces that perception of, of stupidity. And finally, generals always appear quite aloof in their photographs. They have the stiff upper lip and, you know, they're back behind the lines where course they're better able to oversee operations but they're still not sharing the privations of private soldiers so i accept all of those perceptions there but i think as with any organization there are people who are skeptical there are people who might be over promoted um, and might actually have limited experience in a particular context the army is absolutely no different there are of course generals who simply aren't cut out for the war that they fought but you know i think it's probably too much of a generalisation to say that the army was rigid and conservative because for me at least in my research I think it demonstrates a lot of flexibility and we just need to look at how it changes. It goes from a small regular army to a mass citizen army made up of volunteers, of conscripts, different backgrounds and different nationalities. It's such a different organisation and I actually think that the army's incredibly innovative And in a way, it has to be because it wants to find the ways, the means of shortening the war, but also because it's fighting tenacious adversaries like the Germans and the Ottomans. So I guess, in short, um, I think the traditional perception doesn't quite stand up to scrutiny. So if the army innovated, can you give me a couple of examples of how it did innovate? Okay, that's so difficult because there's actually so many, believe it or not. So I'll focus on two particular examples. The first is artillery survey techniques. Now I know that sounds quite geeky and boring, but they're really important. So during the war, two techniques are developed and used across the entire army. So you have flash spotting, and this is basically where you locate enemy batteries by the flashes of their guns. And then you have sound ranging, which is doing much the same, but you locate the enemy batteries by the sound of their guns. And what's really interesting is that these two innovations are initially pioneered by soldier scientists. Um, The French are also experimenting with survey techniques too. So what you're also getting is a bit of cross-pollination between allies. There was, and and I will admit, there was some scepticism about these new methods. But what you also have are a number of senior generals who were really prepared to back those ideas. And the two soldier scientists were actually appointed as advisors to British headquarters on the Western Front. You also see these techniques used out in Salonika and in Palestine as well. So a localised Western Front innovation is having a much broader organisational effect. And I think that's a really key part of um, an innovation itself. You also have something similar happening with British platoon tactics. Now, I know that I said that the book, you know, looks at other things, but this is a really interesting case study of innovation because, you know, the adoption of these specialised platoons in the British Army with their own independent firepower actually has a really interesting genesis. You know, it's influenced by French best practice and that's combined with British tactical development too so again you've got that cross-pollination these new methods they're trialed out in training school settings so there's an ability to fail and to take risk and they use kind of demonstration formations as well 
And what you see is that a number of senior generals and officers actually observing these and buying into this tactical development. And then they get codified into a pamphlet and then they get dispatched to all of the army's expeditionary forces. So once again, you have quite a localised innovation having an organisational wide impact. And I find that really fascinating. So if the army innovated, how did it learn? Yeah, so how the army learns... If it does, you know, this is a this is a really vexed question, I think, in um, in a lot of the literature on on the British Army in the First World War is if you have such high casualties, you know, how, how can you say that the army's learning? I think how the army learns is interesting because it actually does learn and it draws on a number of means to do so. And in the book, I, I call this a networked approach to learning. And I get it. That sounds really management speak. But that can be boiled down into four different ways, essentially. So the army learns first through relationships between individuals. This can be incidental or fleeting, you know, having a conversation with someone, or it can be through like a pre-existing relationship. So, you know, as part of a, of a social network, say. The second means is learning between groups. So this has been referred to as horizontal learning. So imagine kind of two units on the front line, just talking to one another, exchanging best practice, what works, what doesn't work. You also have the same process during reliefs. So when a unit relieves another one in the front line, the unit that's coming in gets all that local knowledge and what's worked and what hasn't. Thirdly, you have top-down learning. This is more centralised. So this is senior commanders playing a key role in promoting certain you know, ways of doing things, for example. And you certainly see this quite a lot in 1916 with an incredibly large army that's often lacking in competence but also experience so there's a requirement for that kind of learning to be used more often and then finally you have external learning and what I mean by this is the kind of learning that you get from encountering enemies allies but also non-military experts as well and I think for me these kind of external inputs are really important because they act as catalysts they're kind of challenging existing practice so what the army does is it uses these four different approaches to learning in different contexts. And I think for me, that goes to show that actually it had quite a flexible approach in that it was using all the tools available to it in order to learn in the most effective way possible. So if it was learning, why was it learning? What what factors actually motivated the army to, to assimilate new ideas? So the question of, you know, why, why did the army learn? I think we can probably sort of break that down a little bit more into maybe two questions. Why did it learn full stop? Um, and also, why did it learn in the way it did, which I think is probably the more interesting of the two. For the first question of why did it learn, it learns because it has to, right? It's this whole military adage of adapt or die, because the Germans, the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarian forces are doing exactly the same thing. They're trying to find ways of increasing their military edge, their advantage over the Allied forces. As for that second question of why did it learn in the way that it did, I think much of this is tied into the army's culture. So even though I've, I've spoken about how the army expands, how it becomes a citizen army, essentially, the role of individuals and the relationship between individuals are really key to how the army learns. And this is a key part of the army's culture, which fundamentally prioritises the individual, the local. It also prioritises pragmatism, you know, what works in a particular situation. And I think, you know, boiling it down, 
there's no one size fits all solution. That's a key part of the army's culture. And I think when you have that kind of culture, you're giving people the freedom, but also the flexibility to try out new things, to experiment. And that's the case whether you're a private soldier in the front line or a brigadier at a training school. So I know you touched on this briefly, but what did the army learn over its four years of, of, of over the four years of conflict? Oh, that's such a deceptively simple question. <laughs> um, I suppose it's useful. I think, you know, to think about it in terms of like macro, so big stuff and micro, you know, that kind of incremental stuff. So I think if we look at what did it learn at the macro level, what it learned how to fight an industrialized war, there were certainly mistakes made that the army ended up paying for in in blood and treasure. If we look at its personnel management system, for example, it's incredibly ad hoc at first. And this leads to so many problems later on in the war when the army's trying to retrospectively move personnel into the right formations and jobs. Now, this is a process that they actually improved significantly during the Second World War. So there is a kind of longer lessons learned process there. But if we sort of look at the, the micro level, you know, we see countless instances of learning and adaptation on the front line, the development, the refinement of new technologies, whether that's, you know, grenades or whether it's just kind of, you know, in innovations in, in trench design as well. I think the big question is, did those lessons actually stick? Did the army assimilate its learning beyond the First World War? And I think in some instances, as with the personnel management system, yes, it did. It also maintains really close relationships with certain civilian professions well into the 1930s. But this isn't the case with all of the lessons that the army learned. You build in stuff like apathy, financial constraints, the passing of time. This all leads to organisational forgetting. And the army is certainly no exception here. So how did the army, obviously it collected a lot of this learning, how did it actually share it and disseminate it uh, through its divisions and battalions and brigades? Sure, so the army uses a number of different ways to disseminate the learning that it acquires. Uh, it uses printed pamphlets, training schools, it also has conferences, you know, bringing people together from different formations for them to share their ideas. And it also uses secondments as well. You know, I know that sounds like quite a modern sort of management tool, but the army absolutely uses this, you know, to give people more experience. And I think, you know, we, we can sort of portion this into to two camps, really. So we have formal learning. These are methods that are developed by the organisation. So your training pamphlets and your schools. And then you have the second camp, which is informal learning. And this is a bit more unstructured. It's dependent on individuals talking to one another. But what really struck me, I think, when, when I was researching for the book was actually how forward thinking the army was in many respects when it came to disseminating this learning. If you take military pamphlets and ex as an example, their presentation and their content actually evolves during the course of the war. So it goes from being really tech heavy or text heavy at the beginning of the war. But by 1918, you've got illustrated maps, you've got pictures you've got kind of like sketched out scenes and they really help illustrate the principles in the pamphlets and I think for me this shows an awareness of the kind of changing needs of the army's personnel because you're moving from career soldiers who who understand this fundamentally to citizens in uniform who you know need those kind of pictorial aids and illustrations to help them digest and assimilate the information contained within. 
Now, obviously, the army was facing an, uh, a conflict it never seen before, and it was faced with a series of problems that arose that tr traditionally they didn't have expertise. I'm thinking about how they built a system of, of ports and railways and waterways to keep the five British armies in France in 1917-18 supplied with food, ammunition and material. So how did they get around these these new problems that they encountered? So I think what well, we need to, to bear in mind with, with the army in this conflict, um, and perhaps you know we could extend this into, into subsequent conflicts, is it's actually quite proactive at reaching out for expertise, for ideas that weren't part of its traditional skill set. So I think it's quite easy to see the army as being, you know, this kind of conservative consumer, you know, it's, it's ravenous for, for, for expertise, rather than an organisation that's actually willing and able to identify the expertise that it requires and then bring that into the organisation. And, you know, we certainly see this with key railway managers such as Eric Geddes and individuals who are members of learned societies like the Institution of Civil Engineers or the Institute of Chemistry. You know, so many of these individuals were commissioned. They were brought into the military in order to improve the armies and increase its efficiency in areas like logistics, transport. But you also see it in, in contracts and procurement as well. You get people who are used to managing large businesses actually being moved to the contract section at the war office and you know this isn't just limited to the British Expeditionary Force in France you see the army drawing on local expertise in Egypt and Salonika to ensure adequate water provision so I think in many ways what we see here is the army kind of acting as almost a co-creator of knowledge and ideas. Finally, Amy, where can people get your book? So you can get my book on the Cambridge University Press's website and you can also buy it from other online stores such as Amazon. Can I ask that if you do buy a copy from Amazon, then do leave me a customer review once you finish reading it because I always like to hear what people think and it's just a great way of continuing the dialogue as well. Amy, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>